Officer down! I repeat, Officer down! Welcome back to 1033. This is your host, Nathan Kapler. A podcast created for a first responder by a first responder. If you are not a first responder, you still are welcome. This podcast is aimed directly at trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. PTSD is complex and often misunderstood. Our brave men and women who serve our communities often end up with behavioral and psychological issues as a result of experienced trauma from their careers. My goal is to share what I know, my personal experience with PTSD as a retired police officer, and continue to advocate for mental health while providing support to those still in their careers. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical help, and I strongly suggest if you are in fact suffering, you seek out professional medical advice. Please join me on this episode as I continue to expose the reality of PTSD challenges. I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome back to 1033. Today I'm joined by Avery Bro. Avery is an aspiring young female who is wanting to get in to the RCMP for a career in policing. And I completely applaud her for what she is doing. We need phenomenal people. We were first linked up through social media. You had a ton of questions for me. And now the tables have turned. We're actually going to do something a little fun today. Avery is actually going to interview me or ask me a bunch of questions for a change. Avery, I just want to take a quick moment to introduce you. I am great, and I'm very excited to be speaking with you today. I have been listening to all your podcasts, and I'm very, very excited. So paint us a quick picture kind of of who you are uh, and where you are at with the RCMP application process. I don't know how big of a picture you're looking for, but I'll (laughs) I'll give a a small uh, snapshot, really. Um, Yeah, like I honestly... In, in small terms, I am just someone who wants to help people. That's all I've ever wanted to do. And I've really, you know, worked in a lot of different jobs, which are focused on helping people. Um, like academically, my background is um, social development studies. So very much in the social work type background. Um, I actually lived in Vancouver for um, three and a half years and worked with a lot of um, at-risk youth, uh, people who are experiencing homelessness, poverty, um, unemployment. Actually, I was an unemployment counselor or an employment counselor. <laughs> um, yeah, and now I I just finished a master's degree in social justice, and I I've just been connecting with people like you. Um, my mentor, actually, who who is going to be in an early recording, but Paulette, um, bro, she is a, a phenomenal person and a huge influence to me. Just being um, a role model of a woman in in policing, she was actually a sergeant, which is really really cool for me. But overall, uh, I'm just somebody who wants to help people, and I really want to go um, into the RCMP um, to make a difference. Uh, I have a huge, huge um, goal of, I guess, improving the world like everyone does when they want to go into policing. And social justice is something that is uh, very, very close to my heart. And I guess a buzzword, which I'll say, is um, like colonialism. 
um, because I have a really strong passion due to some family members being indigenous. Um, I've just seen so much harm done from the RCMP throughout history. And so I, I just really want to um, be a positive change within the system. And so that's kind of who I am and why I'm here. And I just want to learn from you. The interesting thing too, that happens. Uh, and as you realize, as we get older and we turn a little bit into more of the old dog is we need to support the younger generation coming in so that they can take the torch and continue on to progress in this journey. Uh, and you nailed some really cool key points that I love hearing about. I love hearing about the indigenous history that's behind you know, the connection with the RCMP and what does that really look like? And it, it's not, it's not all perfect. There's some very dark chapters there and we do need to learn from that. We do need to heal and we do need to help indigenous people carry on from what they have experienced. Because as I am sitting here talking about trauma at 1033, and that's my flagship, we talk about the trauma and the impacts of it. We have to be very careful with even a group of people experiencing such hardship. So I'm glad you actually touched on that for one. Uh, and I really do hope that we can shift this into a much more positive space where the connection is better, where there is kind of that mutual respect. And we're back to serving them mm -hmm. because I think we've been absent of that for quite some time. Uh, but again, I don't want to dive into too much of that because this topic's a little bit more geared towards kind of the questions that you have for where you're at. But tell us kind of too where you're at right now in the application process. Well, I have some good news. So today I passed the second interview officially and <laughs> more good news is the RCMP has officially gotten rid of the polygraph. So I don't have to do that. So I'm officially onto the psychological um, and medical assessment as of today. So you don't have to uh, tell the world about your deep, dark secrets in the polygraph. Wow. Good for you. I went through it and it was intense. I've heard that. Yeah. I have someone uh, I know who's going to depot in two weeks and he said it was the most anxiety provoking experience. It was basically like confession hour, but on steroids. Um, but I'm, you know what, I'm glad too that the RCMP is kind of modernizing their approach to hiring because we are plagued with some very serious issues, uh, manpower and resources being one of them. So they definitely need to get people into those troops, get them trained, get them out onto the streets and start helping uh, the brothers and sisters that are out there right now doing the job, right? Because they're in the trenches. Now, you're most, I'm, I'm hoping this is me talking now personally to you. I'm hoping that you're going to get in and I'm hoping you're going to get in very soon and you're going to go and just crush training, do fantastic and stay connected with the amazing people that you've built outside already that are going to support you in your career. But what are some of the questions now that you have from me? Cause we're going to turn the tables now. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a lot of questions. I hope you're ready. Um, I, I kind of want to, start the conversation a bit sequentially. Um, and I really want to start with um, preparing for depot. I know you did an episode on that earlier, but um, yeah. So like, do you have any tips about preparing physically and mentally for depot? I would approach that one with 
first, I guess, maybe some insight into where are you in life? Like how old are you? If you're very young, you're going to have a much easier time in depot. Mm. I think personally, uh, now that I'm older and I have issues with say sleep and regular sleep, like if I would have went now, it would have been more challenging to maintain proper sleep levels and the energy required to function at depot. It just would have been right. As you get older, your sleep kind of just changes a bit now for, so that's kind of how I would first answer the question. If you're young and fit, uh, the advice going into it, uh, it's so hard to say you're going to want to change probably the way you train. So approach it probably from a fundamentally just a physical aspect of try to do more high intensity workouts to drop weight because because you're going to be running a lot, you're going to be moving a lot. It's going to be very kind of cardio heavy in the beginning. Uh, so you're naturally going to be when you get there, you're naturally going to be losing weight regardless. So if you can do that now so that you're lighter on your feet and also gaining some of the muscle and the strength behind you, you're going to absolutely flourish physically. And then too, and now obviously as you're younger, you're probably going to have more brain power because you're either just coming out of school or whatever the case is to also be able to be able to meet the academic needs as well. So I don't see someone like yourself really necessarily struggling. And I think you have a pretty good perspective on law. Uh, so I think you're going to be ahead of the game. Now for the older person, what I would say to them is you're going to really start probably wanting to focus on your nutrition for the body, the stretching the gaining the strength, the losing the weight, making sure that, you know, maybe there are components that you need to bring in as you age of meditation, making sure that you can sleep properly throughout the night, making sure that your, your circadian rhythm is good because a lot of people too that are older carry on with night shift, harder jobs, their sleep rhythms get all messed up. They might have kids in the picture. Uh, and another big thing too, that I would just say overall, just to finish this off blanket approach, you've definitely got to check in with yourself to know how you handle stress mm -hmm. and make sure that whatever, whatever you need in your life to make your stress load lighter, you need to bring that in with you to depot because you are going to be stressed. You are going to be pushed beyond your limits, but Again, if you take it one day at a time at depot, you will eventually graduate. And that's where you have to look. It has to be a very narrow scope, one day at a time. The thing about preparing for sleeping, for example, it's a lot easier to sleep at home when you have your own bed and your nice sleep routine. Uh, but from what I've heard from you and all the other RCMP have spoken to, it's just such a high intense environment you're sleeping near like a bunch of people. I didn't even see in the pictures that there's a door on your bedroom. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't know how someone could mentally prepare themselves for such high intensity, you know, for six months straight to be able to know that you're going to like, like my concern is what if you have a really bad sleep one night because you're all nervous and anxious about being at depot and then, you know, it just carries on throughout the whole experience. I don't think like, I don't want to, I don't want to paint a picture for people walking into depot that there should be any kind of paranoia or belief that things are not going to go well. My experience with depot was very much that I tried to do as much as I could 
with the information that I had at the time to prepare me to get to depot. Looking back, my training wasn't as good as it should have been. I should have been looking more at dropping weight and not gaining the strength in the mass, but leaning out. So I was actually into much different uh, lifting style, right? More power lifting, squats and deadlifts and kind of bulking up, trying to get strong for depot when I should have been maybe trying to lean out and get better at running because running was definitely a weak point and that shone through at depot still was able to you know get caught up to speed very quickly but again running is a very important part of police work right we have to be able to move and move quickly and you get tested all the time there's five mile runs cooper's runs uh the pair there's there's so many different things that happen uh, at depot now the other part of the to answer that question is you're never going to be perfect going into depot you're just not like there's no way to truly prepare yourself. But if you can at least look at, you know, the biggest weaknesses that you have and start to shave those down so they're smaller weaknesses so that when you go in, your time is easier, you're going to do fantastic. Now, are you going to get to depot and are you going to have hard days and are you going to have miserable days and are you going to have days where you didn't sleep because the anxiety was through the roof? Absolutely. But you're going to get through it as well. Mm-hmm. And you just have to keep yourself there. Yeah. I, I remember Paulette saying to me when I started my training, just run, run, run. That's all she's just run. Cause she actually used to administer um, the pair. So that's something that I think was a weakness personally for me. Um, I would run, but not at high enough intensities, like you were kind of mentioning. So I've really shifted um, my training. So on like Monday, I do a 30 minute at like seven out of 10, like rate of perceived exertion. And then I do two 20 minute runs and then I do hill sprints. So, and then weights all the other days, but it sounds like I'm on the right track. Absolutely. As long as you're making sure that I'd say probably two to three times a week at least you're doing something so heavily uh, cardio based that at the end of it, you are covered in sweat. You are on the floor. You were like, what world am I in? Because that's where you're going to get pushed to. You're going to get pushed to the brink of your limits every single time and then try to get nudged beyond that as well. So you actually have to get very comfortable too with getting nudged that far along and you're going to have people screaming in your face at, you know, first thing in the morning, right at the drill hall. Uh, I think they're still doing drill, right? So nothing necessarily can prepare you for that transition from civilian life into becoming a police officer, but they also do it in a very kind of slow and kind of gradual pace there. They're not going to just throw you into the fire and expect that you survive. They're going to slowly start to get you ready for it. And you'll see too, after the six months, you'll come out a very different person, much more rounded, much more strong, uh, much more resilient. You're going to move different. You're going to think differently. And you have to as a police officer. So they will get you ready for all of these different things. So the biggest thing is, is even though you will try to prepare yourself 100% for depot, you can never truly prepare yourself 100% for depot because you have no idea what you're walking into. And that's the Mm -hmm. journey that everybody goes through. But as long as you've got kind of a solid foundation, go in and have the confidence and go in and enjoy it. It's an amazing time in life. Not many people get to do this, right? I don't know. You and I were talking before the podcast and I am a little nervous because I would say that I'm someone who is like you, a very nice person, a very um, empathetic and compassionate and um, maybe some people would even say a bit soft of a person. So 
you know, that was actually one of my largest fears when I was doing some research and talking to recruiters was, you know, going into somewhere like depot and you're getting screamed at. Um, it seems like they're preparing you for, for the real world, but are they really, I don't know. <laughs> the one, the one thing I will say about drill drill in the, the drill hall is it's a very old school way of preparing people for things that are just out of your control. People that are running up to you and screaming in your face and demanding something of you. And you have to learn that control to not react. So while some people can look at it as an outdated way of training people to become police officers, I actually almost believe that it's really, really valuable because I don't remember how many times and I can like hundreds of times people would come running up to me in a state of shock. Uh, just having had seen something completely traumatizing, wanting to fight me, whatever the case was. And they would be right in your face and they would be at their worst moment. And mm -hmm. you would have to maintain that control and be there for them in that moment of tragedy or trauma or whatever the case was. So it, it does help. Is there other ways of doing it? I'm sure there is. And I'm sure there's healthier ways of doing it. But at the same time, it is actually a really effective way of getting you ready because you, you only have six months to get ready to be mm -hmm. on the street with a gun on your hip and being there for people at their worst moments. So what, what, what would you think would be a healthier approach to that? Or do you see that as an unhealthy approach? I wouldn't necessarily say it's unhealthy or there's one way or the other. And I think oftentimes we get stuck in those binaries of, of thinking that way. I think it, it could be great, but I think there's also a lot more we can add to the, again, I have never been there, so I don't know exactly what the training's like, but I, I do feel like there is room for sensitivity and, and having some, I don't know if they do training on even just how to talk to people and how to connect with people and have a relationship. I don't get the sense that that is there. I could be wrong. The last time well, I went through depot in 2007. So hopefully we've adopted a more of a modern approach to uh, some of that sensitivity training, right? And actually being able to dive into your own emotions in the moment to connect with people. Uh, and again, just to highlight the fact, if you're just tuning in right now, we're with Avery Bro. Uh, today's episode is heavily geared towards those that are just wanting to, get, or sorry, just getting into the RCMP and they're going through the application process, or someone who is a civilian right now at this moment, uh, and they would have questions for a police officer. What does life look like? You know, what is training like? How do I get ready to become a cop if that's what you want to do? Uh, so again, this, this episode's a little bit different, but it's, I'm again, very excited to do it. Now, jumping back into kind of where we were, I think training is always going to be evolving. As soon as we recognize that in training, we're not doing something right, we're going to change it. And then by the time we change it, we will actually have recognized that that change happened too late and we need to change it again. And that's how growth happens. I think the RCMP is moving in the right direction. I'm hoping that drill has probably 
no, there's not as much uh, of an emphasis on it now as there was when I went through it. Cause we went through that every single day, every single morning, uh, sometimes even later on in the day, very, very military based training. Do I agree with it? I think there's another way, right? And I'm always curious to know what the, the impact of that other way would be. And are people, you know, healthier as a result? I'm always very curious about that. But all I can do is compare my experience to what I had experienced and how it had helped me in the field. So when you say you think there could be another way, do you yourself have any envision of what that might look like? It's a tough one, right? Depot is such a unique little world because when you go away to Depot, you're there for six months. But then you take in, say, a Muni Force, for example, and I could be wrong on this one. Again, I'm so out of the loop on this, but I do believe that when they go away for training, it's kind of a Monday to Friday, eight to four approach. So you actually have some balance in your life. And I think, like personally speaking, balance is a huge thing. It's so important, right? So when you go away to training to depot, I mean, you eat, breathe, and sleep policing 24-7. If you're not thinking about policing, you're shining your boots, you're learning about the history, you're doing all of these things that probably won't make sense to you, but there is a reason why you do them. So, I mean, there's, there's always so many ways you can look at this, and I don't really have an answer to it. But if there is a healthier way, and I'm sure there usually is a healthier way, because if we're not talking that way, then we're, I think, kind of approaching a question uh, with a state of denial, then we're possibly missing out on an opportunity. I would say that. I just don't have a, a, a direct answer for you other than I think balance would be key. And I would like to see more balance be brought into depot. It sounds like you're coming from a place of that we can always grow and we can always learn. So I, I do feel like that was an answer because even though you don't necessarily have the direct thing like that you can envision it looking like, I think the fact that you see a different possibility is actually an answer because some people probably don't see that there's any different way of doing it. And I'm sure you've experienced that in your entire career of people of not seeing another way of doing things. Yeah, absolutely. So, the rigidity behind that. Yeah. And while it can be good in some circumstances, like you mentioned, to keep you safe how you navigate as a police officer, I think, yeah, there is always ways that, that we can grow as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I do agree with you too as, as well in that. I didn't really recognize that answer coming out as it did, but now that I look back at it, that is also an answer. So far in the communication I've received from the RCMP, um, they're mentioning that you should be brushing up on your criminal code, uh, the phonetic alphabet and that. The criminal code is gigantic. So do you have any recommendations for someone who's going to be going to depot, how they can start to prepare or if they should looking at the criminal code? Yeah, that again, that's very tough because I'm trying to envision in, in an answer that can help someone who doesn't know anything about the criminal code, who's never taken any kind of law classes whatsoever, all the way up to the person who's done their two years or four years of criminology. How, how do you get ready to read the criminal code when you don't know how to read the criminal code or you don't have access to someone who can help you read the criminal code? I would, I would start with, I don't even know if I agree with starting to, to read it because I don't know how much you're really going to retain, but 
if you were going to read it, I would definitely start to think about, learn about, and research some of the different offenses because you can kind of break the criminal code down into kind of fundamental key parts. Your indictable offenses, your hybrid offenses, your summary offenses, uh, your powers of arrest. Um, there's different acts within the criminal code that cover off, you know, the drugs uh, or different sections or different federal acts. Um, so I don't think you need to know everything about each page, but as long as you kind of have a rough idea of what the criminal code is and what it does, it's basically a book that says what you can do or cannot do. So it covers off, covers off obviously, uh, sections about assault and sexual assault and murder and the jail time that you can get and how to, you know, obviously form your grounds to arrest somebody for those offenses it also holds police accountable too for use of force as well and also gives you the grounds or the authority to use force and to arrest someone so you kind of just have to have i would say at least hopefully a global overview of of what the criminal code does it's more or less your bible you'll understand right. it more once you get out into the field and you'll understand it really in depth then but I wouldn't say try to understand it with any kind of depth right now. Just have a very kind of blanket understanding of what it is and what it grants you in that role. Right. You mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying kind of there's general main themes that come out within the criminal code, like you're saying indictable offenses, all of those types of things. So it might be important to know general themes, but it's really impossible, I guess, to memorize everything in the criminal code. One of the big things you probably should know, like if I was to say, remember one thing, powers of arrest. Powers of arrest is huge. Uh, obviously, as a police officer, I can't remember what section it is exactly. Um, I could actually dig that up here while we keep talking. But if I would say remember one section, it would be the powers of arrest section. What section is it that grants you the ability to arrest someone and what things do you have to meet in order to be able to arrest someone? But as far as remembering, you know, the, uh, the criminal intent or the mens rea behind assault or sexual assault and all that stuff, I mean, there's just no way. There's no way you can remember that stuff right now. And nor should you be spending your time, I think, on on trying to remember those things because you're going to get bombarded with so much stuff in depot and they're going to train you the way they want to train you so that you can remember these things the way they want you to remember it. I would say try to walk into it almost with a blank slate too. It's almost like riding a horse. Like a lot of people say, I'll only teach you to ride a horse if you've never rode a horse before because there's just mm -hmm. so many bad habits that come along with certain activities, right? So again, just have a global overview. And if you have anybody that's around you, that's a great resource that understands the criminal code a little bit better and can break it down, then go for it. Try to understand it on a deeper level. Just don't try to beat yourself up over having to really understand it. Right. You're going to do that in depot. Yeah. I mean, luckily for me, way back in high school, I took a, a law class. So you mentioned like mens rea, like I remember that stuff. And uh, personally, I feel like it was helpful working with um, at-risk youth because a lot of them were involved in the criminal justice system. Um, but maybe that's something I can ask you later because there were some parts specifically with, with the criminal code that were a bit frustrating at times, um, especially working with... Um, at-risk youth and how like police officers needed certain 
levels of proof to arrest someone for something. Mm-hmm. And for me personally, which we can talk about maybe later when I ask you about moral dilemmas, because I'm definitely going to be going there. Um, but the criminal code can sometimes be a bit frustrating because you know that something should happen, but you might not have all the the things you need to be able to do something about it. That and, and honestly, you just you just described policing in a nutshell. Well, that knowing sounds like that, it's going to be really fun. <laughs> yeah, but and that's the reality of it is knowing knowing your limitations in each each situation and not overstepping that limitation but getting to the fence line and exploring what does that limitation look like? How far can you take it? Right. Very interesting uh, thing that we all go through in policing. See, I, as I said, I, I just finished a master's degree in social justice. So I have this side of me that's a very much an advocacy side. I want to fight for the, the smaller person. So like, do you think kind of this is a different thought, I guess, but do you think someone who has, has that side can still be successful in policing if there are moments like you're saying where you might not be able to do anything or you've said in different podcasts, there are times where you might not see the result of something. Yeah, absolutely. To dive back to the section here real quick, Avery, I think it's 491 sub okay. one is your, your powers of arrest. Uh, and I'm not going to dive into the wording of it or anything right now, but uh, if you're listening to this, go to that section, read it and just let it kind of register a little bit. If it doesn't make sense, that's totally fine. Um, you can figure out how to make it make sense later, whether at depot or through the help of someone else. But yeah, to answer your question about someone like yourself getting into policing, are you going to succeed? Absolutely. Absolutely. The RCMP is beautiful uh, as far as the organization goes because it needs so many people to fill so many different roles across Canada. They need people that have the empathy, that are compassionate, that are willing to be by the victim in a crime in order to wear that hat and be there for them as a social worker. I had to do that many, many times and I was able to do that. You also talk about mental health calls, a very big portion of our calls. You also need to be able to meet those calls with compassion and almost like a social worker kind of spirit. Now, where you get to learn how to, I guess, maybe put the social worker component side of you away is when you get into those calls where there's just no space for it. Maybe you're at an active shooter. Maybe you're in a situation where someone has really hurt someone and he's not showing any remorse whatsoever. And now you have to step in as a police officer and use force and take that person down safely so that nobody else gets hurt. So you do actually become very good through training at depot to be able to split those off and figure out how do you need to handle each situation. Right. Like knowing when there's space for that compassionate side or when you need to not have that as much. (laughs) It's a very complicated job, but, and I will say to this about training, training is, training is phenomenal because it does get you ready. And I know I, even for myself too, there was many times where I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to be able to have, you know, a compassionate heart, but still take someone down at gunpoint and training gets you ready for that. Right. I am like, I am a little bit nervous about training per se. And even just being a police officer in, in this 
in this realm specifically, but as I said, I'm a very sensitive person. So being screamed at, and I know you've mentioned before adrenaline dumps. I, I get screamed at in my job. Sometimes I, I provide services to very vulnerable people in my community and I get screamed at sometimes. And I know when that's happened, I, um, like you said, in that tiger book, just like the gazelle, I, I just shake after. And sometimes I feel like I'm going to cry. And, and it sounds like in, in your past podcast that there's not always time for that. You know, so how do you handle getting screamed at? Or you know? seeing trauma and not having yeah. time to process that trauma, going finding that's that quiet place to shake as a gazelle would do to deal with that trauma. Again, that's very tricky. So I would say, and I would put a bit of an onus on the RCMP to hopefully fix this because they need to look a little bit more, I think, closely at this component of their men and their women who are serving. They need to do a better job of supporting them with the proper manpower at each detachment in each organization or unit, whatever the case is, so that when people are getting exposed to trauma, they have an opportunity to step back and to take that moment. So even when I got in in 2007, we still were facing manpower issues, or I'll call it people power issues, right? Human resources issues. So not, we didn't always have the time to do that. And what that led me down a road of, in, and I talk a lot about this in the podcast, is not taking time to unwind the trauma and to feel it and to process it. Now, I also didn't know how to do that either as a young man. I didn't know, really know how to talk about my emotions all that well at the time either. So even if I was given the time, I probably wouldn't have done a good job of it. So getting into becoming a police officer, this almost brings in a different question because the RCMP needs to do a better job of supporting its men and women by making sure they can have the time to decompress. I believe the RCMP also needs to do a better job of raising Mounties with emotional intelligence. What does trauma look like? How is it going to impact you? What does it feel like? How do you heal yourself? The other part of it too is very much a, an individual effort as well about who are you? How are you wired? Do you need to go and see a psychologist before becoming a police officer to maybe start to work on some of the things that you were uh, dealt with as a child so that you can better understand yourself? There's no shame in that. It's only going to give you the strength and resiliency to get into the job to do better. So a uh, very long-winded answer and conversation about, you know, how, how do we do this better? But I think if we start there we can hopefully end up in a much better place. So I want you to know something. When I was listening to the episode, I believe it was with Sergeant Mike Wilford. Is that his name? Yes. That was one of my favorite episodes. And I, I really chose to be vulnerable in my interview. And I could have not been because I really, really heard what he said about, you know, going to therapy before it's like, um, having maintenance of, of your car, changing, changing the oil before there's a problem. And I, I was talking to my spouse about this. I said, Oh, like, do, do I mention, I obviously can't talk specifically about what was in the interview itself, but, um, I, I chose to mention that I do see a therapist and 
And I do use it as like regular maintenance for ensuring that I'm okay. And I think that this podcast itself and, and even that specific episode really is starting to make those changes within the RCMP because I'm telling you, like, I really wasn't going to say anything and I was ready to just completely change my personality and just not be myself. But I think that the fact that that was even talked about, it really gave me courage to be able to, to say that and be honest about it. And I completely agree with you that, and it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a therapist for someone specifically, but it could be like anyone really. And Again, I don't know specifically what you experienced as a police officer, but but I would really disagree with something you said in the sense of I, I think that more could have been done, even though there wasn't the manpower um, necessarily to have this big formal like critical incident debrief. I really truly believe that more could have been done because as a youth worker um, in North Vancouver, that's the one thing that I distinctly remember being told that uh, a debrief is essential in ensuring that um, you might have experienced something traumatic, but it won't necessarily be post-traumatic stress if you talk about it, even if it's 10 minutes. Like, it doesn't necessarily have to be this big thing. And it also doesn't necessarily have to be a professional. Like, I think, I think the system can really change and like you're saying, if we're becoming more emotionally intelligent and we're learning about all of this stuff, then we can lean off each other. You can debrief with each other. And I feel like having these conversations and this podcast is really taking away the shame from having those conversations. So that's kind of where I'm at. And I know when you were in the RCMP, like that wasn't really talked about very much really post-traumatic stress like it just wasn't a thing so and I've mentioned to you my grandpa was an OPP officer he he never spoke about anything he was a very very quiet person and I kind of see why now because showing vulnerability was not a good thing whereas I think you're kind of right that the advocacy side does exist because we can create those spaces to have those conversations and and it can change that hits, that hits like a ton of bricks. Before I got into the Mounties, I sat down with um, the girl that I was with at the time and we were at her house and I got a chance to meet her grandfather. He's probably passed on now. Um, but I remember sitting there talking to him and he asked me, I think, one question. He's like, oh, I heard you you want to get into the Mounties. Why do you want to do it? And I answered him. And then after that, Avery, he didn't say a word after that. He just shut down. And he was done for the rest of the night. He didn't say a single word. And you could tell in him that he wore a heaviness that just, he was never able to get it out. And there was that generation of men and women that unfortunately were very much that way. Yeah. And they never really got a chance to live their life beyond service. It's it's kind of bittersweet in a sense because this this podcast is really opening up all these conversations that may not have happened before and it I've talked to you about this before um, on social media but 
like my grandpa, as I mentioned, was an OPP officer and he didn't really open up a lot. And there was also some mental health significantly with my grandma. And it was just something that you didn't talk about. You hit it. And it really created a lot of even intergenerational family trauma. And I think that because of, because of this podcast, and I don't say this lately, like I have so much respect for him now. And I, I won't even get to tell him that because he's not even around anymore. But these conversations are so important. And I think that even if there's not the manpower, the money or whatever the reason is, like officers can start to lean on each other and be vulnerable with each other. If that's your only resource, debriefing is so important. So important. So. I agree with you there. Uh, to come back to your point about disagreeing with me, and I, I'm always happy to hear when people disagree with me because it pushes the conversation in a better direction, right? One where you really start to think about, okay, why? You know, what's going on? And the fact that you disagreed with me, I'm going to agree with you on that and build on that too and say you're absolutely right. More more c- can be done, more should be done. Uh, <sighs> I'm so much more accepting now of my journey than I was then in the past, especially. And I don't look back anymore and say more should have been done uh, or it should have been done differently. I, you know, it was my time as a police officer to go through policing the way it was then. And now where I'm at in my life, I'm here trying to advocate and say, we don't need to do it that way anymore. There has been a significant shift in the way we approach our mental health as first responders. We're talking more about it. We also know too that we're not getting the critical incident debriefs as we should, whether it's the funding, whether you're up in a Northern posting, whatever the case is, but you're absolutely right. If, if the organization isn't going to do what is required of itself to make sure that it can support you, you better pick up where you can pick up and start to make your world better. Because if you don't, it's only going to get worse. And I think you're absolutely right. Lean on your peers. Start teaching yourself how to talk about this stuff. Start teaching your coworkers how to talk about this stuff. Start embracing vulnerability, much like you did with your interview. I applaud you. That's what they want to see. They want to see someone come in and say, hey, I'm not perfect. I'm human. And that is what makes a perfect cop, is someone who's willing to acknowledge their faults, their failures, the things that, you know, aren't great about themselves, but they're willing to work on getting better. Right. So I, I applaud you. I mean, for that, that last whole dialogue that we just had there, phenomenal. Right. I mean, I will say I wouldn't fully disagree with you because realistically the time was very different when you were dealing with these things. So the, the system around you, wasn't set up to, to be able to have that knowledge or those conversations. But I would say if you plopped that same situation to the world that it's today, then for sure we can have those conversations. I definitely hear from a lot of younger generational cops now, and a lot of them are very engaged with the work I'm doing. And they're saying, Hey, the conversation is changing. It's a lot more open. It's a lot more inclusive. And I'm like, perfect. We're headed in the right direction. Because yeah, when I went through and when Paulette, when her episode airs, when she went through in the 90s, uh, and especially even your grandfather, there's a reason why that person is the way they are. Yeah, I definitely have 
a lot more empathy than I did before. There was a lot of and understanding for sure. For sure. I, I, like my uncle, for example, was going through, uh, I don't know if he should have these things, but my grandpa's old stuff and he had some files from a little girl being run over. And he's like, I had no idea. I had no idea the, the things that people see and they hold on to. So I will say something and it's going to be a little bit mushy, <laughs> but you, you've mentioned a few times on the episode, the when people say thank you for your service and sacrifice, like I, I feel like I truly get it now hearing all of season one and hearing all of even so far of season two, like you all have given up so much. My grandfather gave up so much and I really, really respect you. And I really respect everyone who is in that profession. I think like, yeah, I, I honestly can't imagine, but I guess I'll be going into it eventually, hopefully, but thank you for your service and sacrifice. Thank you for saying it and for knowing the cost behind it. I, yeah, I just, it just makes sense now. I've seen it in my own family and I've seen all the, the sacrifices that, that, um, yeah, my grandpa made and, Absolutely. I wish I could give you a hug through the screen right now. <laughs> well, I'm taking one right now from you. I know that much. Um, and, that, and I went through very much the same thing where, and right now in this moment, I'm completely rocked with emotion, just appreciation and just joy for people that truly get it right. Because when you, when you hear it come from a civilian. I feel like. It's just nice, right? It was kind of a buzzword even like saying, oh, thanks for your service and sacrifice. It's just such a, a buzz thing to say, but I really, really get it. The, you, you'll see. Yeah, you'll see too in your service when you get in. There are going to be people that use it as a buzzword. There's kind of, there's no emotion behind it and there's no real understanding. And then you get the other people that come up to you and they like, they really, they say it and you know, they mean it. And they also understand the importance of it. And those are the, those are the people that you look at and you just say, thank you. Thank you for acknowledging, you know, my sacrifices, the cost I carry, the things I have to deal with as a result of seeing too much trauma. I, yeah, I really, really sincerely respect you. So I just want you to know that. So thank you. Yeah. I don't say much anymore. I just say thank you. And I just let that feeling kind of, hang out right just the typical you know cop personality it's okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah slowly nudging myself into a better place day by day you'll see me in 10 years i'll be very serious you wait i won't be laughing anymore (laughs) and i'll be saying i'll be saying what you just said to me you're gonna say avery listen to our podcast (laughs) yeah you and it'll land in such a different way yeah for you yeah Wow. Okay. Let me shift back to Depo specifically, because I'm hoping that I get there. Um, obviously, it sounds like it was a very intensive experience. And I know you mentioned at the time you're in a relationship. I am currently also in a relationship. Um, how do you or do you have time to talk to loved ones when you're there? 
Oh, tough question. You know, I think one of the things I tried to do is I tried to stay as engaged as I possibly could with the people back home. Unfortunately, now looking back, I definitely see that I was changing quickly and my ability to connect with the people back home was also changing. I was having less time to connect. I think emotionally, I was probably starting to shut down a little bit just because you're so burnt out there every single day. And it's so hard to to manage kind of your time and the emotions and being able to call home and to hear from someone from home and how they're struggling about whatever's going on on their end, because it all seems so insignificant when you're in depot and it's like you've just been met with endless tasks and endless problems that you've got to work through. So when someone's really upset about, you know, they didn't have chips at the grocery store and their favorite, you know, seasoning, you're just like, what? (laughs) Right. So it's really hard to hold the compassion. Right. So I think for me looking back and I didn't really pick up on this at the time, I think I actually had undergone quite a bit of change over that time. And I think it's really important to have conversation with your significant others and your family as well. And just have lay that foundation. I'm going away, but I also want you to be open with me. Have the conversation with me. If you start to notice that I'm changing, I'm a little bit short, you know, we're either going to have to figure out a way that we can accept that or talk about it, whatever, you know, we need to do for you or whoever's involved. It, it's a balancing act. How often, um, like, were you able to talk to people? Is it an everyday thing or weekends? At the, t- at the time, we had to use a pay phone. Uh, so right. I would literally have to go sit on a shelf in the phone room uh, when it was free. So I shared that phone with, I think, 30 other men. So I think now with cell phones and stuff, like I'm sure everybody has a cell phone at depot. I'm sure you can call home every night. I'm sure you can squeeze in five minutes, 10 minutes, you know, maybe on the weekends, an hour, whatever the case is, you're going to have an easier time connecting with loved ones back home now than I did then. Right. I can't imagine pay phones. I, wow. Yeah. (laughs) That's nuts. So actually, um, another question I have, what do you do on the weekends? <laughs> Depends what kind of person you are. There's a lot of people <laughs> that went out and drank a lot and blew off steam. Uh, I personally wasn't that guy. I was fairly focused on my relationship at the time. So I very much stayed very tuned into the things that I felt I needed to do at depot on the weekends just to stay ahead of the game. So I took the time then to make sure, you know, the boots were polished or the gun was clean or, or whatever the case was, made sure my little dorm was perfect, right? Because you also have to have a perfect dorm. So it really depends. Looking back to, I think that was probably a weakness of mine. I probably should have went out more and socialized more. Uh, but again, it, it all comes down to a balancing act. You can do what you want to do. And for the most part, they give you free reign on the weekends, but you've also got a a monumental load of things that you have to take care of too. Right. I've actually personally made the decision that I'm going to stay away from drinking for a while. Um, Just because I feel like it could mess up your training as well. Like, I don't know how people went out all weekend there and then went back to super intense Monday. (laughs) 
and it, it's something too that happens later on. Like once you get into service life and you start to have your time off, if you're still doing that and you're using alcohol to cope with the stress and to blow off steam, I mean, that's not a great way to approach uh, managing your stress and managing some of the difficult things that you're going through. So I would actually say that that's actually a really healthy approach uh, is, you know, not the sobriety angle, but making sure that you're staying away from booze and you're, you're, you're ensuring that you're staying healthy and you're giving yourself the best chance of success. I'll even say this too. Now, uh, when I was at depot, I actually had a close friend who got in trouble one night with booze and he was drinking and I got pulled into an interview and I had to talk about what I had saw or seen, sorry. And it was particularly uncomfortable because I didn't know where that left me or my friend. Now, luckily, neither of us got kicked out. It turned out to be a non-event, but you can get pulled in for that stuff too, right? So you got to be careful. Right. Yeah. I, I wouldn't say I'm like fully sober. I'll have one drink here and there. Um, but I'm very, very, careful, especially after being a youth worker, I did 24 hour shifts. So I would sleep there for three days and I'd come home and I'm super stressed. And I realized that I was, uh, having a glass of wine when I got home to decompress. And I noticed I was really starting to have one with the other. So I kind of told myself if I'm ever feeling, even if I have like a long day and it's a Friday, I, I, I've told myself, I'm not going to have a drink of alcohol if I don't feel like I'm in a good headspace, because I don't want it to be, Oh, I've had a bad day. I'm going to have a glass of wine. So that's, that's really, yeah. Good to know that that's a good thing. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. You're mentioning family a few times as well and how you change throughout the process. And and I'm sure the answer is probably yes, but did you have anyone who like really wasn't supportive of you going into this or maybe even later on who was like, oh, I don't want you to do that. I think, yeah, I think there was two camps of people. There were the people that showed up and were very openly supportive of it. You're going to make a, pl- a great police officer. We're excited. We're proud of you. And then there were people that were also very quiet. And you could tell that they were the ones that were just kind of sitting back and just kind of, you know, grateful or appreciative that I was going in. But at the same time, had some reservation, but also didn't know how to talk about it. So never, I, d- I don't think I had anyone ever explicitly say to me, hey, we don't think this is a, is a good idea. Maybe... Maybe I have a different experience than, than you might as well. And this might be something for other uh, people who identify as women or maybe other types of groups like non-binary, all those other things. Um, I have actually been explicitly told that I shouldn't be a police officer and that I can't do it. Who so, told you? Without naming names, uh, uh, family, inner circle. It was family. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, a long time ago I said that I really wanted to be a police officer and I was told, no, you can't do that. You, like you shouldn't do that. Why don't you go into like social services or something, and which is what I did. But I feel like the seed was planted for me that I really did want to do this. And, and having other female 
and whoever women police officers has been really influential for me because I, yeah, like I said, I have been told that I can't do it and I won't be able to do it. So I wasn't sure if you kind of had any of those experiences or not. Um, I guess it could be more, more common for, um, can I talk about that? Sure. I'm going to go out on a limb and say the person that told you that you can't do it has an underlying motivation or reason or fear for you and some kind of protection ideology around you or or something there right it's i i think it probably has less to do with them looking at you and saying okay avery's not capable of doing this i'm just worried about the impacts to her right i'd say that's more the narrative lately um I've been able to kind of pull those pieces out when I've had the conversations with this person about um, like the fear and also um, seeing a lot of traumatic events. I'm as I mentioned, and you are as well, like a very sensitive person. So there was kind of that fear of, Ooh, like, how are you going to handle that? But the part that really bothered me is it wasn't even a conversation. It was, you're, you shouldn't do that. Like, you can't do that. I'm not supporting this at all. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure a lot of other women also experience that, though the motivation could maybe be a bit different than my initial thought process, like you're saying. It sounds like a very incomplete conversation. And those, those incomplete conversations that we have in life, I had many of those when I was younger. I now, in my 30s now, recognize that when you have a conversation and someone tells you something like that, you've really got to drill into the, okay, now I'm giving you my time because now you need to explain yourself. Why? Why is it that you feel that way? Mm-hmm. Right? Because you don't also want to go away to training with this looming over your head. That's the other part of it. Incomplete I mean- conversations are the worst. I feel like, I'm sorry, we're kind of going into me here a little bit, but <laughs> I, I feel like I've kind of begun to establish a lot of boundaries as well. So um, we have had those complete conversations and I say what I need from that person and um, it's more of an open dialogue uh, and I've been receiving more support, but it's still very much like those people you're saying where they're a little bit quiet because they're, they're uneasy about the whole thing. Cause it is a dangerous job. You're quite literally putting your life on the line. Um, you've mentioned in many podcasts and even in conversations with me, like you will change and you will likely have post-traumatic stress. And it's probably really, really scary for a lot of loved ones to see that. Absolutely. And they don't want you to suffer. And that's, that's the human, the human experience, right? We don't want other people to suffer. So when someone comes to us and says, Hey, I want to do this. And if we look at it in such a way where we're trying to protect someone, we're going to say, don't do it because I don't want you to go there and suffer. And I mean, you and I were talking just before we started to record this, I had a very similar conversation, even with my mom, my mom now years later is very angry at times over what it has happened to me. And And I've had a conversation with her, you know, multiple times where I'm saying, hey, the person that I was before, that sensitive, compassion, empathetic person, uh, yes, I've changed, 
but it's also been a good change too. I went through a lot of hardship, but it also has helped me to grow. So it's not like everything has been lost or this has been done in vain. So even for yourself, and I want people to recognize that within you, you may think that you have these limitations that keep you away from doing a job such as policing, but at the end of the day, you're actually a lot more capable of doing more than you realize and more than others even realize too. That hit me. <laughs> that hit me right in my feelings. <laughs> and that's where you have to develop this thick skin with people that come to you and they rain on your parade and they say, no, you can't do this. You're not capable. Or they have their own ideology of why you shouldn't do it, but they're not able to express that. But then within you're saying, this is where I want to go. This is my dream. They right. don't have the right to stop you. I do think it's important to recognize who your safe people are because I would never, ever want to surround myself with someone or people who would just always agree with me. So if you want to disagree with me, sure, but let's have a conversation about it. Is it coming from a place of love and, and true care and, and compassion for, for me? Or is it coming from a place of control and judgment? So And fear. Fear is that fear. underlying one that always sneaks out. And I and you know, just because something's scary doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. That's where a lot of the growth comes from too. But I guess it's not in left field that policing's scary and dangerous and you know, from experience. So um, the next thing I was going to ask, if there is anything specifically you can think of that you should avoid at depot. Uh, another good question. Let me think on that for a sec. Like if I can jog your memory a bit as well, in some of the episodes, I think you said you got advice to not be the best person but not be the mm. the worst person mm -hmm. so that type of thing oh i don't know i don't know if i'm still giving that advice or not um flying under the radar i think is what i called it yes yeah yeah it's it's probably still not a bad idea to be honest with you uh one of the things that you shouldn't have a depot you should not have an ego mm. remove the ego definitely remove the ego. You want to show up, you want to have the vulnerability, you want to be real, you want to be authentic, you want to be the real you at depot. Do not have an ego. I saw lots of guys roll through that place with an ego and an ego problem and they got called out for it in many different ways. That will shine through very quickly and it'll get very tiresome with the troop very quickly because you have to work as a team. And there's not a lot of room for egos. So if you were to strike one thing from Depot, I would definitely say remove the ego. I still am somewhat of a fan of flying under the radar. And I don't say it in such a way where it's avoid, you know, avoid opportunities where you can show that you shine. Or show that you are possibly going to fail at something. I say it in such a way where be humble, be modest. Don't be at the front of the pack. Don't be at the back. Make sure you're always challenging yourself. You're helping out. 
And I would, I would just kind of frame it that way because really depot is, yes, it's about you and your experience, but it's also about helping 29 other people get through depot. Right. So it is about you, but it is also about others too. And that's, it's a great question. Uh, I can only give you an answer of don't, don't bring the ego along. Leave that at home if you can. And flying under the radar, probably still not a bad idea. Because uh, you definitely don't want to be seen from the facilitators as someone who is the overachiever, is always answering, is always at the front of the pack, you know, because you also want to give others an opportunity to also demonstrate kind of who they are to it. Again, it's bring bring balance. Is that a better way of saying it? Right. I have a bit of a fear because um, I don't feel like it's so far out to say that men and women are typically built physically different and have a lot of different capabilities. Not saying that women can't do what men can do, but for example, I sincerely struggle at doing push-ups. Sincerely. I've been working extremely hard at it, but that's one thing where uh, Paulette, for example, was telling me they're always telling you do push-ups, do push-ups, do push-ups. And I'm a little afraid I'll be at the end of the, the bottom level because I just don't want to stick out too much. I'm just trying to think how how you can approach that one. Like, I can I can do a regular push up, maybe a, a few of them, and I'm practicing every single day, so I feel like I'm doing that. But I know they said you could do push ups from your knees, but will that out you, for example, of being weaker than the rest of the group? One of the things you'll probably recognize when you're at depot is you're going to be horrible at least one thing. And it's just the way it is. Like you said, there are limitations with your body. There are some things that you just cannot change. And if push-ups are that thing, then so be it. Try to build on that weakness the best you can. I'm sure there are definitely ways that you can strengthen the body to grow if you absolutely need to push yourself, and I think this is probably probably be good for you, you may want to consider a trainer mm-hmm. or getting someone to help you to grow if you're not seeing the results that you want. But also, are they not going to let you become a police officer because you can't do all the push-ups? I mean, if you're hitting the benchmark, the standards, you're going to be okay. I can't even remember what the standards are. Uh, well, they there, said the the lowest <laughs> the lowest fifth percentile is. 10 and then the 50th percentile is 20 to 40 something and then superior is like well beyond that like I could definitely do a bunch of push-ups for my knees I cannot do 25 push-ups regularly at this time but that doesn't mean I won't be able to in the future yeah so one of the other things too you can do is instead of doing a push-up get down into a position and just hold that hold that push-up position at its lowest point and start to challenge yourself in that. And that actually might be a different way of training because maybe you're not training the right way to really kind of push yourself. Because I know too, I had to change the way I was training and do more static holds or different muscle movements in order to to gain the same thing. Because I think my, what did I struggle? I struggled with pull-ups. Like pull-ups were not my thing, but I'm a heavy guy. Like right now I'm probably 250 pounds. Like I'm not light at all. So for me to jump on a bar and just pound out a bunch of pull-ups, like it's tough. It's not easy. So when you take a, a guy who's completely like 
built like a, or a woman who's very thin and can pound out 10, 15, I might've done three or four. And that's just the way it is. That's just the way my body's designed. It kind of is what it is. Right. I think with push-ups, they said you could do jumping ones, which I can maybe do one and a half right now. <laughs> oh, perfect. So, and it sounds like Depo 2 has probably eased up. They're not really, really strict on, you have to be able to do 10 push-ups. You can do it a different way. Well, I was talking to Paulette and she said that they do allow you to do, they call them girl push-ups, but apparently <laughs> the ones from your knees because what men and women are built differently, like not saying women can't do regular push-ups, but it is like exponentially more difficult when your body's built differently. Um, but she did say that that was allowed. But did you ever see anyone do, <laughs> doing push-ups from their knees? Back in 07? Yeah, I did. Oh, okay. Yeah, I did. And were they like made fun of or put on the outs at all for not doing them? No, no. I think, I think then, like, I think most of us were, were at a point where a lot of the people that struggled with certain things, you could tell they had just hit that point where they had reached their maximum and they couldn't go any further. So if somebody had dropped down and done push-ups, you know, by knee, we tried to be supportive and encourage them to see that through. There was, there was never any, I don't think there were any points where I can actually look back and see any of us throwing each other to the wolves, so to speak, about that. Right. And when you're at Depot, are you just training with your own troop the whole time? Is that how that works or? Yeah, for the most part, like you can develop relationships too with people ahead or behind you. Like I know when I was there, I had uh, a classmate from college. He was a few troops ahead of me. So I'd hang out with him once in a while, got to know a few people from his troop. Um, There's no structure with who you can hang out with or mingle with or socialize with. It's just kind of up to you and what you're comfortable with. Right. So I guess you're your troop kind of becomes like a family. Your troop becomes a family indeed. You get to sleep with these people and that's not a sexual reference. That's a (laughs) sleeping with, you know, in a dormitory type of setting. I think I, I slept alongside 26 men for six months. We always joked because at the end of it, we actually all became common law. So we were all saying that we had half of each other's stuff. Uh, and when I went through too, we showered together too. And I don't even know if that's still a thing, group showering. I would hope that's hopefully changed a bit so you can have some privacy. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was a different way of training back then. Right. And I feel like you mentioned the men and women are on different floors. They are. Yeah. So can there be... Like are men and women and can they be in a troop together just on a different floor? Is that how that works or? Yeah, I believe so. I know some of the buildings there are set up with, you know, say men on the top floor, women on the bottom, uh, and it's all secured and locked for obvious reasons. And I think there are some trailers that might be there as well. And I think I've heard sometimes of men and women possibly being housed in that trailer Um, but there, I'm sure there's some kind of, you know, watchful means over to make sure everybody stays in their lane and everybody stays professional. 
Right. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> it's a different way of life for six months. <laughs> um, so I kind of want to move now into the actual experiences you had as a police officer. Um, and I will say that some of the questions could maybe be triggering in a sense because it might bring up memories of, of something you've been through. So if I ask something and you don't want to talk about it, we can move on. Absolutely. So we'll throw out a trigger warning here for many people. If you're listening, there's probably going to be some in-depth conversation around trauma that could be triggering even for you. So proceed with caution. Yeah. Um, did you ever like throw up when you saw something on the job that was just so traumatic and like disgusting? Yeah, totally. And I mean, it's actually kind of relevant because I'm posting on social media right now about this too, about how we need to properly talk about our traumatic experiences. We can't use dark humor. We can't use cynicism. We can't use anything else to describe something that was actually traumatic to us, right? So, and I think that's a really important part also of staying healthy and trying to, I guess, maximize your health, and make mm-hmm. sure that if PTSD is going to become an issue, that you're at least trying to keep it as far away from you as possible. So when you talk about your trauma properly and you say things like, I'm sad, or you know, seeing that person that had passed away really kind of impacted me and made me sad, uh, and I feel slightly depressed, at least you're talking about your emotions and you're getting it out and you're not using the humor of you know, cracking a joke and you know, being you know, the perfect fit in the detachment or whatever the case is, right? So I think for me, one of the big events where I physically became sick was we ended up getting a call where we had to go to a hotel and the staff hadn't seen an older lady leave the room in about three days, three or four days. So as soon as we showed up, I was already starting to prepare myself for, okay, this could be uh, a sudden death. And the body could be in there for three to four days. So we could have some smells. We could have an unsightly kind of scene that I'm walking into. So I need to mentally prepare myself for that. Uh, So as soon as I opened up that door, sure sure enough, an odor hit me, which I knew was, you know, the smell of a body starting to decompose. And if you want me to stop because it's too much for you, you tell me and I'll stop. Oh, I'm good. I was just fixing my chair. So we quickly did our, our investigation. Uh, there was no foul play involved. Uh, she was very old and she passed away from natural causes. The coroner was on scene as well. And something that was really uh, kind of interesting to me in that moment was, I can't remember if this is my first dead body or not, but uh, the coroner is the only one that's really allowed to touch the body, move it or anything like that. So police, I don't believe have authority to do that. And that was, I think, one of the things that I learned then. Um, some people may not be aware of that. So as the coroner says, okay, you know what? I'm satisfied that this lady passed away from natural causes. Let's get her out of the bed and into the gurney. Well, uh, I had a, a smaller female with me who wasn't that tall. And I tried to give her the lighter side of the, uh, the body. Uh, but what ended up, ended up happening was the body actually kind of fell off of the bed in kind of this weird manner. And at the same time, the body was compressed and folded and a bunch of gas came out of it and hit me in the face. 
And that was one time where the smell, uh, I became instantly sick and I actually had to put that deceased person down and run out of the room to try and get fresh air for a second. Uh, so yes, didn't throw up, but was at a point where I felt like I was very close very, very close. Uh, I'm trying to think there are other situations I've been involved with that have definitely made me ill, but I didn't vomit from, I don't think I vomited once from any of them. Um, I didn't know that police officers like touched the bodies. I thought that was what paramedics did. I guess it depends, right? If, if a coroner is there and overseeing the event, I'm I'm pretty sure they have the authority, don't quote me on this, because I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure they have the authority to let police officers or at least advise them to get them on the gurney and get them moving along to wherever they need to go. Um, yeah, and, and maybe that day the paramedics weren't around. I, I'm not entirely sure. Like, did you have to transport the body somewhere? No, we didn't do that. So she was there with her own vehicle that took the body away. Okay. <laughs> so, and, and you know what, maybe it, it's been so long Avery, too. like I could actually be just not remembering the right details. I don't remember any ambulance being there. Could they have met us outside of the hotel and taken the body and transported it elsewhere? Totally possible. Right. So the reason I'm asking is because I have a very extremely weak stomach and I don't think I could have held it in. So maybe another question on top of this is like, have you like one, how did your partner react to that specific situation? And two, like, have you ever seen another officer like not be able to hold it in? I haven't. I've seen some men and women get rocked in a situation where you can tell in that moment they're unwell they're unwell and they need a moment to collect themselves. Uh, and I think I talk about that specifically on one of the episodes where we were swarmed and one of my female partners gets pulled into the group. And it, it to me, it was a near uh, life or death situation. And I also feared for not only my safety, uh, but hers as well. And the impact of that entire night, I can remember uh, four cops after that near death experience. And we all had been a part of that event in some different way. I think myself and that female partner were the only ones that had been directly inside of that, uh, aggressive group, but others also knew kind of what had happened to us. Right. And, and having partners that are very empathetic, they go through some of the feelings as well. So when we had actually gotten back to the detachment, we were all cooked from stress. Like we all just started taking off our duty belt and our vests and in our boots and we just needed to get stuff off so we could breathe. None of us got sick from what I recall, but I think four or five of us sat there for the better part of an hour, just completely unable to move, just needing to reorient, orientate, orient, orient, uh, ourselves to kind of what we had just experienced. Do police officers puke or vomit? Absolutely. We're human. We're going to see something that is going to be absolutely horrible. It's going to happen. Uh, I think we can understand though that the body is absolutely fantastic. And even though in the moment we might get sick and 
lose the contents of our stomach, we're going to be able to ask for help. And that's a very important part too of that, that journey and policing is to not, to not take your moments where you're going to be weak and to just shove it down and try to push on, but say, Hey, I'm not doing well. I've got to take some time. I need some help. In that, in that specific situation, like, did you have to move the body or could you have said, Oh, I want to let the paramedics do it? I'm sure I could have let the paramedics do it and called them. I was a bit of a bull in a China shop. I, I, I didn't like to leave work for others. So when I was asked to do something or I came across something that I had to do, I usually preferred to do it myself. So how I don't even know if you'll be able to answer this, but like how often did you come across bodies in different states of decay? Not, not, not entirely common, but I'm trying to think over the course of my career, I mean, definitely saw a lot of death, a lot of uh, fatal motor vehicle accidents or collisions, uh, especially in Whistler at that time, there was, it was kind of the sea to sky highway with single lanes before the games. And the highway was, I can't remember if they called it the death highway or something, but there was always fatals happening on that thing. So there was a, there was an immense amount of trauma as soon as I got there. Um, but as the games were coming, the Olympic games, they poured a bunch of money into the highway to double lane it, to make it a little bit more safe, a little bit more scenic. So that actually ended up dropping off, I believe. So did come across a lot of dead bodies. Unfortunately, didn't come across a lot of bodies that were going through the decomposition process, but also did come across a few at various stages. I think one that three to four days, three to four days, maybe a week was my longest. Yeah, that's tough. Um, And it's a tough pill to swallow, right? As you sit there and you think about, okay, can I become a cop and can I see a body uh, in a state of decomposition because they're the smell and the sights and everything that comes along with it. It's, I don't even know how to describe it. I really don't. I know a piece of advice Paulette gave me was to put Vicks in your nose. That can help. That can definitely help get rid of the smell or at least decrease the smell. Right. I mean, but, would someone make fun of you if you had tissues in your nose? <laughs> I don't no, know. No, I wouldn't. Really? Absolutely okay. Not. Well, Absolutely I'm doing that not. then. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like you've said, like, you change once you become a police officer and you go through training and all of this. So I'm coming here completely as a civilian hearing this, and I'm like, that's disgusting. Like, <laughs> honestly. Um, so when people have this conversation with me and they're like, oh, you have to be, um, prepared to see like death and dying and different, um, you know, uh, states of decay, how, how would someone like me or anyone else going into policing, you know, know if they can or can't do that? Or how do you prepare for that part of the job? For me personally, like I, I was lucky enough that when I went through college, they actually took us to, uh, I believe it was like a funeral home where they had 
deceased bodies and we actually had an opportunity to see that firsthand uh and to me it didn't really bother me all that much i think the things that bothered me most was the blood that came from some of the the accidents and some of the gory things that you might see, right? The the really significant injuries that happen to people uh, that are involved in motor vehicle collisions. That one probably bothered me more. How do you prepare yourself for that? You don't. You can't. There's just no way. Uh, but then again, those, those situations happen, uh, let's hope, seldomly. And hopefully your policing career is, you know, more focused on other aspects and not just that. You will see that eventually in your career and it probably will have an impact to you. But much like trauma, as long as you are able to talk about it afterwards and, you know, work through some of those feelings or some of the hard things that are holding you back, you know, there is a way to recover from that too, I believe. And, and to be honest with you, if, if you're going through a situation like that and something happens, you get sick or you have to put tissues up your nose, nobody's going to judge you. And if they do, they should stop. Right. Because I guess that's like I said to someone when they were telling me to be prepared for this, I said, you know, I didn't wake up saying I wanted to be a police officer and said, wow, I'm really excited to see a suicide today. Like no one really prepares themselves for that, I don't think. And um, Paulette. Um, she's a part of a, a female RCMP group and she actually reached out to them and asked this question as well. And I know you mentioned that you shouldn't always use dark humor, but apparently in these types of situations and correct me if I'm wrong or if you've used this, but apparently it can be helpful to use dark humor in those moments or um, talk to the bodies or see them as just a body. Like, is there any techniques? Yeah, that really that comes down to the individual and the way they cope. Like if, if you need to cope with that incident and you need to have dark humor just for that incident, do it. But just make sure that when you leave that you don't continue to use dark humor six months later, a year later, 10 years later. You need to come back to what it is that you're going through and talk about it openly, properly. So, and, and again, the other, the other part, and I talk a lot about this on the podcast too, is when you become a police officer, you get very good at kind of being able to put your emotions in a box while you're dealing with a very significant call. But the hard work is, and I wasn't really taught this, was how to come back to that box of emotions and then you'll deal with it after. So you right. will find that probably with your training and with your experiences, you'll actually get quite proficient with being able to put your emotions away just for a moment to be able to deal with what's going on. And then hopefully you have to come back to your emotions as well to stay grounded, to stay healthy. It almost sounds like you go into autopilot during the event. Yeah, in a sense, because there are going to be some things that you can't not stop being a cop in that moment to vomit or tap out or refuse to do work. You're going to have to do it. I mean, like worst case, like I'm telling you, like I have a very weak stomach. Like I, I imagine though, like in those situations, one, like you're saying, you just don't, you just hold it in and maybe you do it after when your body is just like releasing that adrenaline but I guess there's ways you can just do that 
quickly and then continue the situation. Like if you really, really had to. For me, I was the kind of kid that I was told, I think, I think it may be 10 years old that I should never become a police officer because my, my class had went to this fire hall presentation and they had played a movie of like the jaws of life life opening up a car there was no body involved there was no blood there was nothing but in my mind I had built it up into something so much more so I actually had gotten very hot during this presentation and I think almost passed out or did pass out and I had to go outside to get some fresh air and remember the teacher laughing and being like hey Nate you should never become a cop because you couldn't deal with this everybody else in that room was totally fine or not, or just didn't have the reaction I did. And I was one of the only ones that ended up becoming a cop. So I'm with you on the very sensitive, very weak stomach, but I also was able to work through it. Right. So another question I have as well, kind of along those lines, because this is the one thing that does make me very nauseous is uh, mucus. So being spit at, and I'm sure you've been spit at before and had a lot of other really disgusting things happen. So yeah, how do you, how did you deal with that one? And then also how did you stomach that when it did happen? Yeah. And I remember having more fear about this too, before getting into becoming a police officer as well. Like I thought, do I have to buy glasses to keep mucus out of my eyes? And, you know, you worry about like hepatitis C and HIV and all of these different, uh, issues that can come from policing. Once I became a police officer though, you become very good at reading people very quickly and you kind of get to tell who's going to be the one that's going to spit. And if they're the one that's going to spit, well, you're going to back up a little bit and you're going to talk to them a little bit further away, right? Just so that you have time to either put a hand out, right? So you don't get spit out in the face or whatever the case is. So you will literally develop a gut that is just so amazingly well uh, at telling you kind of who's who and where you should be and how you should be reacting with people that you probably won't have much of an issue with this, I would think. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> um, actually, I have a question again about death. And you mentioned in one of your earlier episodes, which I have a lot of questions about this specific scenario because it really bothered me. And I think you know what I'm going to ask you about. Um, that sudden death that you went to where you were told you couldn't kick in the door. Definitely going to touch on that in a second. But yeah, how, I guess it's kind of the same question, but like how do you even prepare for seeing a sudden death or what was that experience, I guess, like for you seeing that? It was very heavy. And the whole the whole uh, situation was very heavy for me. Uh, the moment that I got the call, because as soon as the call came in, I quickly recognized that I, this most likely was going to be a, a suicide. And it probably was happening right in that moment when I was getting that phone call. Everything was pointing in that direction. And I mean, you also experience as a police officer too, you get very good at reading the calls that are coming in. You go, okay, this one, this one probably isn't actually happening right now, or the person isn't able to carry out with it. So uh, what we're going to be walking into is probably going to be a little bit different than you know the one that I walked into that day so as soon as that call came 
in to the moment where we were finally able to get into the hotel room where sure enough, the body's there on the bed. It was hard. It was almost devastatingly hard because I could have been there in that moment to, you know, to save that life. And I'm not going to talk about how the person passed away because it's, yeah, even now I'm getting triggered. But again, this is, I mean, this is the impact of trauma, right? Even years later. So nothing prepares you for that moment. Nothing prepares you for the pain that you will see in humanity. And this possibility that you may have had opportunities to save lives, but we also can't wear the guilt from that as well. And we can't let that weigh us down. And that's the one thing I've learned with trauma is as long as you are trying your best in the moment to do as much as you possibly can, your heart's in the right place and you're doing the right thing. So you, in essence, should and can be free of some of the harder emotions that come from, say, that call, say, the guilt or the questions or not knowing, you know, if I was a minute earlier, could I have saved him? And it's helped me gain some acceptance over what I experienced. Right. Yeah, I can definitely, um, I can definitely empathize with that uh, specifically because um, like my aunt, she, she took her life and there's always those questions in your, and she had PTSD as well. I don't think I ever told you this, but um, you always question and you have to be so careful about going down that slope of what if I did this differently? What if I did this? What if I knew about it? And I think that's natural as a human being because we don't want to see people suffer and we want to fix things. And our brain's trying to make sense of something that just doesn't make sense. When someone does that, they're not mentally well, which you've said so many times in, in your episodes. And you know, it's never, ever going to make sense, no matter how much we try to make it make sense, because we're relatively mentally well, we wouldn't even think about that. Or, well, you might have ideation, as you mentioned, you'd had in the past, but it wouldn't maybe get to that point. So um, tell me if I if you want to stop talking about this. No, keep going. Okay. Um, you, You mentioned with the call, like, you can kind of gauge what you're walking into that specific call like how did you get the sense of like where the situation was at like how did you know so inherently that i need to get there right now i think one of the things you get really good at as a police officer is listening to your gut and just reading reading people the way they talk to you the emotion that they might have in the moment what does it mean what's going on you you become kind of a professional in the sense of you get really good at reading people and really what's going on behind the picture, right? Because sometimes we can try to hide behind our words or we can say I'm good when in reality we're not, you know, giving the behavioral cues of being well. And you can, you can really get good at that. So I think in those moments, I remember, I remember the phone call that was placed. I think it came in from the fiance about she was very worried about, you know, her fiance being up at Whistler. And I think they had just got uh, engaged and a few details started to spill out about the pressure that he was under and how he was unwell. And, 
you know, he wanted to come up to the, to Whistler for the weekend and be alone, right? Social isolation, not good. Uh, and there were some other issues there as well. So you start to kind of get this picture that's being painted for you of just kind of where this person's head may be at. So then you start to go, okay, this person probably is capable of maybe taking their own life, right? Because I kind of understood suicide by that point. And I think the other part of it was, uh, obviously, as more details start to roll in, as I was driving to that call, uh, as soon as I got to the call, I could tell the door was locked. And when I tried to use the master key, it wouldn't work. So it was dead bolted from the inside, which is usually a sign of someone's inside that room and doesn't want you to come in. The TV was on, the volume was cranked way, way up, really, really loud. And for someone to be in the room with the volume way up, I knew in that moment, okay, this person's carrying through with it, most likely. And that was, I mean, that was enough of a signal to me that, okay, what I'm walking into is in fact actually going to be a suicide. And now I just need to get into that room, like as soon as possible, because we have a small window of opportunity here. So in that moment, I remember you specifically said that you radioed to say what you were going to do next. Is that typical to need to be communicating like your every next move for like safety or why, why was that done? It was done for safety for one. Uh, and it was also done because I was prepared to basically destroy property in order to execute my duty. Now I was fully uh, covered under my authority to break that door down. And I had enough grounds and reasons to get in that way. Uh, unfortunately, the supervisor at the time didn't want to because he was looking at it from a fiscal responsibility standpoint. Okay, we don't have money. The detachment doesn't have the money to do this. We don't want to do it, whatever the case was. Uh, but not getting the support, I mean, that's also part of the moral injury Then, then that sets in around that time, right? It was a very difficult time and I didn't really understand moral injuries at the time either. I understood trauma, but I didn't understand moral injuries and what they actually were or sanctuary trauma as well, which is something else that happened after when I tried to go back to this individual to talk to them to say, hey, you know, what just happened wasn't okay with me. So uh, to dive back even further, kind of to one year one question, uh, I think one of my other fears too, obviously, was that if someone is at a point where they're willing to take their life, a lot of times there is something called suicide by cop. So my main fear too was not only am I going to be walking into a situation where someone's probably taken their life or is taking their life, they could also be wanting to hurt a police officer or hurt somebody that's coming through that door. So even though I knew in that moment and had that conscious thought of, okay, I have a very small window of opportunity here to get into that room to save a life and I've got to break that door in now, I also have to be very careful too because if I bust that door in, somebody could be sitting on the other end with a gun pointed right down towards me. So it's very much a catch 22, right? Where you also have to factor in your own safety at the same time. So it was very much a, Hey, this is where I'm at. I have to boot the door. Now somebody get here quickly. Right. I feel like that piece was kind of missing in that episode because for sure, like there was 
that sanctuary trauma, like that person was not supporting you in that moment. I, but based on what I'm hearing as well, like there also was a sense of safety, like you're saying of why you made that decision. And it might not have made sense then, but I don't know. I just, I, I really truly believe that we make decisions in the moment because at that time, that's what the information we had and that's how our body was reacting. And I feel like you could, you did everything you could have done in that, in that moment. I don't know. That's just what I think as well. But it also sounds like, and we've talked about this before as well, that that supervisor, you know, like you were experiencing trauma, like imagine what they were also experiencing. Not that it was an excuse, but for someone to get so far down the rabbit hole where they're just worried about the door. Like, yeah, and that, I mean, I think I think initially I met that response with anger. Like I know when that supervisor showed up, I walked away from him because I, I knew in that moment if I was in the hallway with him for any length of time, it could turn into me losing my cool. Right. That's how passionate I was in that moment. And I mean, we have talked a little bit about too, about that supervisor. We maybe didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things, right? And maybe there was some components of different personality uh, issues there that didn't jive with each other, whatever the case was. And that's something that happens in policing too, is you do have to work with these people regardless of their own experiences. So now I can look back at that with much more acceptance and see kind of what that individual had probably been through in his life. Not, not the individual trauma, but the disconnect of not being able to support myself in that moment. Because I, I, never, I never asked for much. And I knew every single time that I made a call that it was going to be accurate. So on top of that question, have you ever had an experience in policing where you disobeyed an order? Ooh, good question. Good question. I probably have. Like, for example, what realistically would have happened if you kicked the door in? Uh, realistically, I probably would have been written up or rep uh, reprimanded or written a negative 1004 for not obeying an order. Um, but I mean, in totality of the, the situation, I mean, once, once I would have been like, well, okay, like you want to write me up? Well, I'm sure as you know, we know that what happened in here was definitely warranted me kicking that door. Um, I could have gotten in trouble. Uh, and that's, that's also to touch on too. Like I think for a lot of members, they get very fearful of getting in trouble as an RCMP officer in doing something wrong. So there is definitely a fear. And I think there is a, a large amount of fear for each person that's in the job uh, that keeps them away from challenging those moments because I think challenging, and you you would agree with this, I'm sure, in those moments where we have the grounds and the authority to do what we're doing, why wouldn't we do it? If it's an issue of, you know, fiscal responsibility or, you know, just a personality issue between two people, uh, there could be a, an essence of negligence there, right? So you got to be careful of that too. So again, I don't really have an, a perfect answer for you. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be like an exact example, but do you think in your career that there was ever times where you 
disobeyed an order. Not, not for a reason that would have been like malicious. Oh, right. No, I mean like similar to this situation in a sense where a supervisor says, oh, this is going to cost too much money or um, go to this call instead of this call, but your gut's saying go to the other one. Or, you know what I mean? Like, has there ever been times where you've done something differently? Yeah, lot, lots of times. Lots of times. But I've also made sure that if I'm going to do something differently, that I can articulate why I've done it differently. I don't have an exact example for that's you okay. in this moment, like right off the top of my head. But that's the other interesting thing too with with being a police officer is a lot of times you're going to be in the driver's seat on a file, on an investigation, and you're going to have people from the outside, you know, barking in at you, do this, do that, do it this way, do it this way. You have to choose the way that you're going to do it and ultimately be able to articulate why you're doing it that way so that you can explain to someone after the fact, this is why I did it this way. And I had to, because this is the information I had. Right. Like part of the reason I'm asking, for example, is something I learned in my master's degree is unlearning and also learning simultaneously. And um, there's certain aspects of social justice that I'm investigating. And I feel like I have a bit more of an understanding about why an individual might act a certain way or might do something or what's triggering them or things like that, where someone else might handle it completely differently. So a supervisor might say to you, Oh, just go put that person in handcuffs or I don't know what they're telling you to do, but you might think of, okay, no, we can actually handle this differently and and not have this be a traumatic situation. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that another integral part of policing is being able to hold different perspectives about what to do in certain moments. So you you are never going to have a cookie cutter response to every single situation that happens in front of you, especially if it's happening to two officers at the same time, because one person's going to have an idea of how to handle something. And then the other one is going to have an entirely different idea on how to handle that. So you have to figure out a way to work as a team to find a common common uh, way forward so that you can both do what you want to do. And again, very tricky because in the heat of the moment, like if you're dealing with somebody who has a knife out, uh, you don't have time to communicate. You don't right. have time to sit down and say, Hey, how, how are we going to do this one? Right. It's kind of, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like, okay, it's go time. Like we've got to rely. And that's where the training comes in, where hopefully you're falling back on your training and you're both responding the same way, because ideally in those situations, you should be responding the same way. And then once everything's under control, then you can start to look at, okay, what do we have here for an offense? What are we arresting for? You know, this person needs to see a lawyer. Do we need to get first aid going? Uh, all the different components, but you're absolutely right. As long as you can look at a situation and you can articulate why you want to do something the way you want to do it, it's your choice. Right. Cause I, I, I just really don't want to lose that part of me where um, like police officers come from so many different backgrounds. Now there's teachers, social workers, like lots of different people. And I feel like everyone has something to, to bring to the table and to really change policing as well. And I just, I don't want to lose that side of me, you know, but there is a different way to handle it. Absolutely. And I applaud you for doing that. And I think you should do it that way because I mean, it's the team approach that's going to move everything forward into a healthier place. 
Right. Thank you for your continued support with this project. And thank you for tuning in today.